Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Colin Jeromack, Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies at New York University. Colin recently published Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town, which, for my money, is one of the very best books on the shale revolution written to date. Colin lived for eight months in a rural Pennsylvania county experiencing the shale revolution and documented the experiences of residents over eight years. The result is an extremely thoughtful, nuanced, and human portrait of how shale development has affected one community for better and for worse. Stay with us. All right, Colin Geraldmack from New York University. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks. Glad to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today, Colin. Uh, your book uh, is so fascinating uh, and so well done. I really encourage people to to give it a read if they're at all interested in shale gas and fracking. Um, but before we start talking about the book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in working on environmental issues, either from a young age or later in life? Sure. You know, it it's hard for me to pin an exact origin, uh, but if I had to pick something, I would say punk rock music. Nice. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I got very into punk rock and and that's really how I got into politics in general. So I got involved in, you know, uh, protests and activism around racial injustice. I got into vegetarianism and then I've been vegan for 21 years. And originally that was that was around animal ethics. Um, but, you know, those sort of expanded my 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 sort of orb of concern and well-being for the non-human world. I also have been an avid cycler, cyclist since uh, really when I, I was in the, I was raised in the suburbs, but when I moved to the city for college, I just, you know, uh, biked everywhere and I continue to bike everywhere through all seasons. And so in that way, you know, sort of seeing the way that cities are really organized around cars and how there isn't really, historically has not really been room made for cyclists. And even when a cyclist is killed, it's really not treated as as a as a significant death in a way like drivers are almost never punished. And that got me, you know, so there was various kind of avenues around my personal lifestyle, I guess, intersecting with punk rock, making me think about um, all kinds of ethical issues. That's really interesting. And and when you say city and suburbs, you're referring to New York City, right? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm from Philadelphia, and although I was raised in the suburbs and I went to college in Philadelphia. So so there. I would really say that's where that's where it, it 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 started. But I've been living in New York City since 2002 when I moved here to get my PhD at City University of New York. Great, got it. Okay, so let's let's dive into to your new book, uh, which uh, we'll have a link to in the show notes. The title of the book is "Up to Heaven and Down to Hell: Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town." And can you just start us off by telling us about that American town, which is um, Williamsport, Pennsylvania, in Lycoming County? Um, that's where the book is set, and that's where you carried out the research. So, just tell us a little bit about it and how you found yourself there, and how much sure. time you spent there, and all that. So, uh, Williamsport, some listeners might be familiar with the Little League World Series, which uh, brings together Little League teams of 12-year-olds from around the world every year for 10 days in August. Uh, that's, that's what it's most known for. Apparently, in Little League baseball, the idea of different teams of kids competing against one another was born in Williamsport. Um, historically, it's about 28,000 people, so it's a small city. Historically, in the late 1800s, it was known as the lumber capital of the world. There was a period of about 25 years 
where it claimed to have milled the most board feet of lumber anywhere in the world. And so that's really what put it on the map. That's why anybody wound up living there. And there's still on 4th Street downtown, there's this stretch of beautiful Victorian mansions called Millionaire's Row where all the lumber barons lived. Um, but since I would say the you know the the mid twentieth century it was a it was always small but was a bustling um, industrial center, but for the past fifty years has really you know like so much of Middle America has seen uh, the loss of those manufacturing jobs which led to a pretty major population decline. Um, Williamsport lost about a third of its population over the past half century, um, and and these days well, when I move there, it's a place where. Um, you know, it's still it's I don't want to say that there's like there was nothing going on other than fracking. I mean, there are two small regional colleges. There's uh, two mid-sized hospitals. So there's a small professional population there. Um, but at the time I moved there, it was an area that for how small it was, had outsized drug violence. Uh, it was known as a heroin distribution center. Um, it was pretty regular that there was gun violence happening, even people affiliated with gangs that I did not presume to be operating in areas this small. And so so that's the kind of scene of, of Williamsport. Now, as soon as you step outside of Williamsport uh, in the county surrounding it, it's much, much, much more rural. I mean, there's no other town of note that's, you know, more than 2,000 people. It's in the foothills of, of the Appalachian Mountains. And so it's either state forests and game lands or uh, f- small farms, um, mostly just dairy cows or beef cows. Uh, there's not, you know, there's not many crops grown here, and so it's a very bucolic pastoral place. As soon as you get outside of the small city of Williamsport, yeah, that's great. And you know, I, I've spent some time up there myself doing doing research, and it's really beautiful, like rolling hills and uh, just wonderful forests and barns uh, all over the place. When did you move there, and how long were you there? Yeah, so I I moved there in 2013. And I lived there for eight months and I, I, you know, I selected this area because the year before I moved there, Lycoming County had the most new gas wells drilled of any county in Pennsylvania. So I knew it would be a place where a lot of fracking was happening at the moment I would be there, a lot of drilling and fracking. And also uh, Williamsport, as small as it is, uh, it's the largest city for about an hour and a half in any direction. And so that made it the, an ideal place for all the petroleum companies that were operating in the northern tier of Pennsylvania to set up headquarters. And so Halliburton built a facility there. You had Chesapeake, Anadarko. Um, so I lived there for eight months back then in 2013. But it's really the book follows the people I met over seven years up through 2020. I've made many visits back and stayed in touch with people, which really made the book. I don't know if it's the way I intended it when I moved there because I didn't think it would take me this long to write the book. But it really kind of tells the story of the boom and then the bust and what happened afterwards um, as, as basically the industry declined in the region. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's talk about that now and kind of the types of things that people experienced uh, through, through your eyes. Um, so let's first we're going to talk about the, the good and the bad and, and the ugly and, and everything, I hope. So um, let's start with some of the good. So sure. what were some of the benefits that community members experienced uh, that you observed? You know, the most tangible benefits are uh, come to landowners who lease their land. And, you know, this is a place where even many people who would be living uh, technically under the poverty line still own property. Over 90% of the area is owner-occupied. So there's not a lot of renters. So even if people who are poor have inherited a piece of ancestral farmland, right? So so you might be living on 10, 20, 30 acres that was part of your great-grandparents' 400-acre farm. 
And so, um, and almost everybody leased. I met, I mean, literally like less than a dozen people who, who did not lease their land. And so everyone who leased got a leasing bonus per acre. And sometimes you didn't get much. I mean, if you leased early and you didn't really know what was happening and you didn't talk to a lot of other people, you might have only gotten $5 an acre, $20 an acre. People who held out or who band together with other lessors um, sometimes got as much as $2,000 an acre. And so you could get substantial money from leasing bonuses. And then if they wind up drilling underneath your property, you get monthly royalty checks. And that's really the life-changing money if you can get it. And so, you know, and so everybody who leased their land got some money. Um, you know, it wasn't always life-changing, but certainly could settle a tax bill that was due. Um, maybe even set aside some money for your children to go to college. And so that's really where the biggest positive impact was. Um, you know, ancestral properties that might have been millstones for some people that they, you know, were struggling to hold on to now were generating revenue. Um, it did temporarily, and we'll get to the bust later, help revitalize downtown and create some jobs. Williamsport did build five new hotels in a span of just a few years to house all of these itinerant workers who were coming up from the oil fields in Texas and North Dakota and Colorado. Uh, so, you know, new hotels, new restaurants. Um, Halliburton built a facility in Muncie that at its peak employed 600 people. And, and I should also say, although this is less tangible, it shouldn't be underestimated as something that's really important to people around here is a lot of people talk to me about how fracking put them on the map, you know, that this was putting Williamsport on the map, uh, you know, that it was being talked about across the state and sometimes even entering national conversations. Uh, you know, the mayor at the time tried to redub the city the energy capital of Pennsylvania. And there was a real pride in that. You know, there was a real sense that, like, Williamsport could be known for something other than the Little League World Series, which, while that's a nice thing to be known for, doesn't really bring a lot of jobs or doesn't make people want to move to the area. And so these were some of the benefits. Yeah, that's great. Um, so let's go to the other side of the coin. Um, can you talk to us about some of the downsides that people experienced? And, and I, I just want to refer people to the book because obviously we're doing kind of the thumbnail sketch here. There's so much great nuance in the book. But tell us some more uh, about the downsides. Sure. So probably the worst downsides, which are the ones that get the most publicity, which thankfully I didn't encounter a lot, although I follow six families in the book that this happened to, is if you wind up with contaminated water. You know, they they when they drill uh, for this shale, which is a mile underneath the ground or more, you obviously have to go through the water table and they put cement casing and, and metal casing that is usually does the job of preventing the gas, the methane that they're after from getting out and the other chemicals that they use in the frac fluid, but occasionally uh, that, you know, and in, in the six families that I followed, what happened was the gas well that was drilled, it was never even fracked. It had faulty cement casing, and so it allowed the methane to leak into people's drinking water wells, and so six families wound up with explosive levels of methane in their water uh, that 12 years later is unresolved. They still have bubbling uh, water. And then two of the families also wound up with other contaminants in their water, turning the water, uh, you know, brown and pink and winding up with some of the chemicals that are in the frac fluid in their water. So that's one of the things that can happen. Thankfully, it seems to happen to few people. Um, that's that's the worst downside. Um, but I think the more typical ones that many people experience are what I would generally call the the loss of rural character. Uh, you know, it's it's to frack one well one time is five million gallons of water. That's about fourteen hundred big rig tanker trucks driving on small, often gravel roads. So huge truck caravans, 
idling along roads, chewing up the roads, um, you know, a lot of generators running uh, that are loud and spewing, uh, you know, fumes into the air. Uh, when they when they the methane that they're getting out of the ground is almost pipeline ready, but there are some liquid impurities that are literally just burned off in people's backyards. So there can be these acrid, volatile organic compounds being burned and vented, you know, around where people live. Sometimes people closing their windows um, from the smell of it. Uh, when they drill a new well, at the time it was common before they hooked it up to a pipeline to flare it which means you're burning off that gas that's coming out and that is louder than a jet engine and it's you know creates this huge flame that's like 80 feet in the air obliterates the night sky sometimes it was so loud for 4 or 5 days at a time that people would leave town um because it was just unbearable and so in all these kinds of ways you know um you 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 lose your quality of life um more deeply a people who lease their land even though when I'm sure we'll get into the politics that a lot of people were supportive of the industry one of the things they didn't really recognize was how much autonomy they lost over their own estate. Guards telling you you can't access your own driveway at certain hours because the trucks are moving in. Um, you know, people that didn't recognize, didn't realize that the gas companies could set up trailer camps for people to live on while they're drilling not only your own well, but even your neighbor's wells. They could still use your property as a staging area. So there was all these ways that people didn't really understand how much they were really turning over their property to the gas companies who could then tell you what you can and couldn't do. And the last thing I'll say is, uh, I, you know, not to be too dramatic, but a loss of local democracy or community control. One of the things that the industry was successful in doing in Pennsylvania and other states like Texas was convincing these conservative legislatures and governors who were very enthusiastic about drilling that Zoning, if municipalities could control fracking through zoning like they could control other industrial uses, that that would create a huge obstacle to the industry because every time they move into a new town, they face different restrictions on how far a gas well can be from a drinking water source, um, et cetera, et cetera. So what they convinced Pennsylvania to do, as many other oil and gas producing states did, was to disallow communities to control how fracking is regulated and where gas wells are placed through local zoning. And so a lot of residents, even though they were supportive of the industry, were really upset that they could not, you know, like they could with other land uses from a cell phone tower to a traffic light to a liquor license, you know, turn up at a community hearing and voice their concerns and push the township board of supervisors to put restrictions based on those concerns. And so that was something that I think people didn't anticipate and they were very upset about was the loss of community control over land use related to fracking. Yeah, that's such a good summary. And it's so it just really dovetails with my own experience traveling to a lot of shale regions. And I obviously did not live in any of them for eight months, but but I've been to lots of them. And, you know, the stories about water contamination are severe when they occur, but they're really pretty rare. And, you know, it's really, you know, there's a term used in the book called ambient insecurity mm -hmm. uh, that kind of captures a lot of these, um, you know, feelings of disorientation that people feel. And it just really resonated with, with the conversations I had as oh, well. Oh, that's great. So, um, let's talk about one particular person who you spend a lot of time with um, uh, throughout these um, seven years or so and that you describe wonderfully in the book. Um, his name is George Hagermeyer. I think I'm saying his name correctly. Can you tell us about him and how his experience with shale gas sort of evolved over the time that you knew him? Absolutely. Uh, George, who I would consider a dear friend of mine now, um, he lives alone on 77 acres that he inherited from his parents. And what 
what really connects him so deeply to his land is George is the youngest of seven siblings, and he was just two years old when his father died. And so he actually never knew his father. He doesn't remember his father. Um, and his father's the one that bought the property, built the house, uh, built the barn. And so George really feels like he's tending to his father's legacy. And it's through caring for the land that he has this connection to his father. Uh, he himself is a retired custodian. He worked for 30 years as a janitor at the local high school, Montoursville High School. And so, you know, living on a pretty modest pension, um, he's very reclusive. Uh, he seldom leaves the property unless he has to. He claims not to have slept off the property in over 30 years. Um, he, he never married. He does have he does have someone who he calls a daughter. Um, he stayed at his house to take care of his mother until she died. And also his sister had planned to give up a girl for adoption many years ago. And so George adopted that girl and raised her as his own. Um, and so, and so he, he even says that the only time he left the property 30 years ago was because his daughter at that time, you know, begged him to go to Disney world. Um, and so, so he's just very attached to his land. He's content to spend the entire day just pacing the property, meandering in the woods, mowing it. I mean, mowing the fields takes a day and a half. Uh, and, and he's very, he wouldn't call himself conservative. He refuses to identify himself politically. He just says, I'm an American. But not only is he concerned, I would say he's libertarian. He basically distrusts government in all forms, doesn't believe in almost any kind of regulation over land use or personal sovereignty. Um, at the time I met him, Anna Darko was drilling six gas wells on about four acres. They had cleared just about 800 feet behind his house. And he was incredibly enthusiastic. I mean, he was excited about the money, but he also just felt like, uh, you know, he, he was proud that he was playing a small role in, in, in making America energy independent. Um, he felt that the gas company was treating him with a lot of respect. He even told me that, like, you know, Anadarko could make a commercial featuring him um, because, you know, he was just so excited about fracking and so pleased with the way that they were treating him. Um, and that changed over time. And, and, and really, it changed, you know, no major contamination happened to his property. He didn't wind up with, with contaminated water. He didn't wind up with any major spills. But it's this issue that I had already mentioned to you about really the erosion of his personal sovereignty. Uh, you know, he was livid when a security guard put a temporary stop sign in front of him and said he couldn't go in his driveway uh, because heavy trucks are moving in and out. Uh, he didn't know that they had put a security camera on the well pad and he walked across the well pad, just took a shortcut through it to get to his backfield. And the next day, the security guard told him that uh, that the camera that he didn't even know was there had recorded him walking across the well pad and did he know that that was trespassing because actually even though it's his property the company is leasing the pad and that he would be arrested if he did it again and you can imagine how that made made him feel uh he didn't know until he saw a classified ad in the paper that the petroleum company was required by law to file that it was going to be withdrawing 225,000 gallons of water a day from the stream running through his property to frack a neighbor's well not even his own well and then lastly, uh, when finally they were done, they were done fracking, they were done withdrawing water after a year, things had finally calmed down and he thought his life was getting back to normal. All of a sudden, all these big rig trucks started driving down his, you know, right by his house, down the driveway to the pad with uh, trailer homes on them. They were putting a so-called man camp where dozens of workers were going to be living temporarily while they were using his property as a staging ground for the well pad next door. And so in all these really, you know, minor, but, but for him, major ways, he had become a tenant on his own property. 
And 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 I I mean I knew these things were happening, and I you know I I had moved out and I was talking to him over phone and checking in with him, but I didn't really appreciate how much it had fundamentally changed the way he thought about the industry, until I invited him to give a lecture in my class in New York City, and I had decided to bring him and uh, Ralph Kisberg, who founded an anti-drilling group, with the idea that George would represent the landowner who supported fracking. Uh, he had just gotten his first royalty check, which was $34,000 um, for just the first three months of production. And so all of a sudden he was in the money uh, and, and, and uh, you know, and he told me some of the things he was spending the money on, um, like he was able to buy a new SUV and a, a zero degree radius turning mower. I'm not getting that right. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a connoisseur of uh, lawnmowers, um, but, uh, and so, so he rented a stretch limo to make the trip with Ralph. And uh, I, I thought he was going to present, you know, the pro drilling side. And he got up in front of my class and said, I wish I didn't do it. You know, what would my daddy say if he saw the way that they desecrate my property and they don't respect me as the landowner? Um, and, and, you know, George, he did not become an anti-fracking activist. That's not really his style. Um, but he did start turning up at local board of supervisor meetings when drilling issues were being discussed and just like offer basically would would offer testimony about all the minor ways that you know the indignities that he had suffered and 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 started calling his state representatives and just saying like you know we ought to be doing more to protect the landowners here and to let them know what's going to happen to them and so that's that's the story of, of George Hagemeyer which I think um, you know is a microcosm of the way that a lot of people felt which I think really shows how the industry doesn't really care. And really there's so many, I mean, the industry actually had the goodwill of a lot of people and I think could have done pretty basic community outreach, uh, you know, to have kept the support of a lot of people like George that, that it just didn't do. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of people that I met um, that were what you might call true believers in the beginning who now are pretty sour on the industry. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I mean, one thing that I did observe across the country is that there's a there's a pretty wide range of uh, behaviors within the industry, right? Some some are kind of better at being communicative than others, especially in I'm thinking of places like Colorado, where where there tends to be a lot more community outreach. Um, but yeah, but your your points are are really well taken, and the story of George Hagermeyer is um is really fascinating. Um, let's go to sort of uh, another topic, which is the anti-fracking movement. So as our listeners will know, there's a large and very vocal anti-fracking movement in the United States. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, how the folks that you got to know in Lycoming County kind of experienced that movement and and how they viewed it? Yeah. So there, there's one local organic anti-fracking group called the Responsible Drilling Alliance. And as the name might suggest to you they were very careful even in picking their name um i mean they basically are against drilling but the co-founders recognized that there was so much support that you know if they wanted to try to be able to make a bridge at all they should call themselves the responsible drilling alliance um and and sort of try to find ways to bring um local many of whom especially outside of williamsport almost everybody is conservative i mean this is an area that went more than 70 percent for trump in both presidential elections um, and so the problem is that the Responsible Drilling Alliance, which is very small, I mean, really about a dozen sort of core active members, got drowned out by a much more vocal, larger and disruptive anti-fracking movement, which was emanating from urban centers like 
Philadelphia, New York City, and Pittsburgh. And so, you know, for instance, there was two incidents that everybody talked about that really uh, colored the way that they thought about so-called fractivists. Um, one was that there was a, uh, a a trailer home, Riverdale Trailer Park, which the people that lived there were going to have to leave because the owner of the land had sold it to a company that was going to withdraw water from the west branch of the Susquehanna River for fracking. And so obviously the people that lived there weren't happy about it, but all of a sudden it became this huge protest where a bunch of people came in from New York City and Philadelphia and camped out there for days uh, and they called it Occupy Riverdale. So obviously explicitly making reference to Occupy Wall Street. And, uh, and and so, you know, a lot of locals who knew about Occupy Wall Street and were not supportive of it because they saw that as like, you know, a bunch of urban liberals who want government to just take care of you. Um, and so now now for them, this and this was pretty early on, right? This was 2012. Um, this becomes the most visible manifestation of what it means to be anti-fracking, that it's Occupy Wall Street, that it's tied in with. Uh, all these quote unquote socialist, you know, um, activists. And then the other thing which happened just a few months after that was a group calling itself Artists Against Fracking uh, took a tour bus through the area with journalists. And Yoko, this was Yoko Ono, Sean Lennon, Susan Sarandon, uh, Mark Ruffalo was a part of this group. And they took a tour bus through the area and got out and protested at at areas where contamination had allegedly occurred. And so what this did was this really cemented people's view that anti-fracking advocates were outsiders, that they were urban liberals uh, who, you know, who were not part of the community. And they would do what people sometimes call like drive-by activism, right? You show up in your bus and then you leave. You camp out and protest at this site and then you leave. Um, and so, so, so this – it really cemented the idea, this sort of rural-urban divide, you know, that people who were against fracking were urban liberals. And – and of course, you know, some people would even note that uh, we're aware that the state of New York has banned fracking, but the single biggest source of heating uh, for New York State is either methane or propane, which comes from fracking. And so New York State is uh, heating itself with fracked gas from Pennsylvania, including many tenement buildings or large apartment buildings, condo buildings in New York City. And so locals will talk about that as well, you know, like, well, they're they're going back to their apartment heated by fracked gas. And so... Um, you know, that was the view. And and I think that, um, you know, I mean, to get more to just the actual politics, uh, you know, a, a lot of the emphasis of, of anti-fracking advocates, which is the emphasis of a lot of environmentalists, which, by the way, I personally agree with. So I'm not it, this is to say that I think they're wrong, but is on we need strong federal regulation, uh, you know, so sort of an emphasis on top down regulation restrictions on on industry restrictions on on land use and then the same at the state level right and a push to ban fracking a push for the state to be more involved in regulating this industry and you know a lot of locals are distrustful of government regulation a lot of locals uh, don't believe that anybody should tell them what they can and can't do on their own land which includes leasing their land for drilling and so the sort of the actual sort of policy message um, very much conflicts with their emphasis on land sovereignty, on personal autonomy, on community control over resources and community control over land use. And so that's the conflict. Yeah. And, and there's a, a, a 
journal article uh, that you cite uh, that just has the best title ever, which is not in your backyard, yeah. uh, which is kind of nicely captures the dynamic there. So we only have a couple minutes left. So I- I'm going to ask you a, a tricky question, a, okay. a complex question that I'm going to ask you to answer quickly if you can. Um, you mentioned that uh, that George, you know, wouldn't sign the lease again, right? If he had to do it all over again, was that a common sentiment that you encountered, uh, or kind of what was the mix of uh, views that people have today, right? If they could go back ten years into the past and decide whether to sign that lease again, uh, would they alter the lease? Would they not sign the lease? What's the general sentiment? Sure. So I would say the general sentiment, which might surprise you, is not that people would not lease. And actually even, I mean, I was very surprised, but even Tom and Mary Crawley, who I talk about in the book, I wrote a piece recently in the New York Times about them. They wound up with explosive levels of methane in their water. And when I met them, when I talked to them most recently, they were saying, you know, if the company came around again, we would lease. And this gets to, now why is that the case? I think why that's the case is because people recognized that even if they didn't lease, they would not stop fracking. So the Crawleys only own, you know, I mean, quote, uh, only. I mean, it's a lot to me, but they own eight and a half acres. They're surrounded by farms of hundreds of acres. And so, and actually they were contaminated by a well drilled on their neighbor's property. And so this is a classic resource dilemma, right? Where people say, well, I don't trust the industry, but would I lease again? I probably would because as long as everybody around me leased, I'm still going to deal with all the consequences from it. So I might as well get the money. Um, I think what more of them would have done is they would more of them would have formed landowner coalitions. So like banding together with other property owners and saying, you have to lease all of us as a block or else none of us will lease and then fight for better lease terms. Right. You have to drill further away from a water source. You can't put a uh, infrastructure this close to my house. Uh, you have to you know, get more money for a leasing bonus, a greater percentage of royalties, um, et cetera. And it is really interesting to note that you know there are parts of the country where these types of landowner coalitions have you know been relatively common, but uh, but they have evolved over time, and and the context is often you know different from what you saw in uh, in Lycoming County. So, um, Colin Jeromek, this is uh, such a fascinating conversation. And once again, I just want to encourage people, if you're interested at all in fracking, I think you're going to learn a ton from this book. It's called Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town. So let's ask you now the question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that's at the top of their literal or metaphorical reading stack. It can be related to the environment or even just tangentially related to the environment that you think is really great and you think people should check out. Yeah. I'll give you two things, one book, one podcast. Uh, the book is uh, This is Chance by John Mualem. Uh, it's a wonderful book about the, this, the great Alaska earthquake and how this, you know, at the time in Anchorage in the 60s, it was a new city and it was very disconnected from the continental U.S. And there was this major earthquake that basically all the community residents had to figure out together how they were going to recover from this disaster. So it's like a really great, beautifully told story about um, how communities respond to disaster and what community means. Um, and I, I, can't, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's a lovely book. Um, and I've been hooked right now on uh, the podcast seen on radio season five, The Repair, who has Amy Westervelt as, as the guest host, which basically tries to track from literally the book of Genesis till now uh, how Western culture and Western civilization and the particular politics and ideology of Western civilization contributes to climate change and the climate crisis. It's just phenomenal. I actually am thinking about building uh, a class at NYU around the podcast. 
Wow, those both sound fascinating. And I, I, I think I've heard of the Alaska book, but I, I had not heard of that podcast. So so I'll definitely have to check out both. Well, great. Uh, Colin Jeremak from New York University, uh, thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you so much for coming on the show uh, and for teaching your students and doing all the things you do. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Happy to be back. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.